0: Have you ever, ever really wanted something, badly wanted something? Maybe it was to uh, go to college or uh, to get more schooling. Maybe it was to run a marathon. Uh, Maybe it was to, uh, I don't know what it is that you could fill in for you, but something that you wanted really badly, that you had a sense that you were even supposed to do. I've shared a little bit. Uh, uh, Pastoring is kind of a second career for me. I was in the business world and felt the Lord's call. And as best as I could try to get away from it, it kept coming back. And so I called my mentor because I needed a little advice from him. His name is Jerry Leachman. He's a pretty no-nonsense guy. And Jerry asked me three specific questions to ask myself as I was thinking, is this what God is calling me to do? And the first was this. Question number one, what do you really want? You can use these uh, in life, uh, in your particular circumstance. What do you really want? Not only now, but always. In other words, get to the heart, the motivation of what it is that you really want. What's going on in your heart? And once you decide or think you decide what it is that you really want, you move to question number two. How much or what are you willing to sacrifice? To get that? It's a great question, right? There's a lot of things that I want. I want to be a scratch golfer. I want to be a fantastic painter. I want to speak 10 different languages. And I want to be a fantastic interpretive dancer. Some would say that perhaps I already am and I've achieved that goal. Nonetheless, what are you willing to sacrifice? Because there's always a cost, isn't there? What are you willing to sacrifice for this goal? And that really often reveals to you whether you really want that or not. And then the final question was, what gets my time? In other words, I may say I'm willing to sacrifice, but really where things hit the road is usually my money and my calendar. I'm willing to sacrifice that. Okay, well that means getting up at this time. And that means doing this. And that means paying this. Because you're always going to pay. I bring up these questions because I think that this Gethsemane moment for Jesus Christ is when Jesus is asked and answering the question, what am I willing to sacrifice? On the cross we see the action of what Jesus did. But in the garden we see his heart and the struggle behind what drove him to do what he did. Gethsemane really is the crossing of the Rubicon. The decision to move forward. The decision of what he is willing to sacrifice. Gethsemane is the counting of the cost. Our goal in this sermon is to examine the heart of Jesus, not his actions that will be in the cross, rather his heart. To see what he is willing to sacrifice. For in the example of Jesus, in the decision that he made in the garden, we learn the truth that true love knows no bounds. There are three things we need to look at if we want to understand what Jesus Christ is willing to sacrifice. Number one, we have to recognize the price he was willing to pay. Let's look into his heart and see the price. Recognize the price. Number two, we have to understand the necessity. Was this really the only path? Was there really no other way? And then finally, number three, we need to value the gift. Once we truly understand the price, once we truly understand the necessity, we need to value the gift. For the greatest gift was given in Gethsemane when Jesus decided to walk in the path that God had for him, the path that led to the cross and ultimately to the empty tomb. Well, let's look at point number one to recognize the price. A little background Maybe you were here last week. The last supper has happened. Jesus has communicated that he is going to give his life. The disciples have pretty much abandoned him or Satan has, um, Satan has stirred them up in such a way that they have discouraged Jesus. They haven't abandoned him quite yet. But Jesus knows this is his hour. And so they leave and they're walking to the garden of Gethsemane uh, they crossed the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, and it says, as was his custom, that's where Jesus would spend the night. He would go into Jerusalem during that Passover week, and then he would go out and he would spend the night. Interestingly enough, John extends that time where Jesus has left the Last Supper and is walking to the garden, and we get some of the greatest teachings in the Bible. John 14 and 16 about Jesus saying that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. John 15, the beautiful example of Him being the vine and they being the branches. And then finally, John 17, the prayer before the prayer where Jesus is praying to the Father and we get to overhear Him. But Jesus is going to Gethsemane for a reason because He has to pray. He has to pray to the Father. And so He says to the disciples, Uh, In Matthew, the parallel passage, sit here while I go over there to pray. And he withdraws about a stone's throw. He actually takes Peter, James, and John with him even closer. And we see that Jesus' soul begins to be overwhelmed. says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. What a powerful and poignant statement. Have you ever been sorrowful even to the point of death? I don't think Jesus is given to hyperbole here. I think it's true. We see his actions, his agony and sweating blood and so forth. His heart is so sorrowful and so sad. He needs his disciples to keep watch with him. He needs someone with him as he Falls on his face, as the other gospels say, before God to pray. And he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Some of the parallel passages say, Father, you can do all things. If you're willing, take this cup from me. And we have to ask the question what is the source of this sorrow? Why this overwhelming sorrow? I think if I was in this situation, maybe fear is what I would have, but it doesn't say fear. It says sorrow. I think this is one of the keys of understanding Jesus' heart. So how do we dissect that? Well, I think the first thing is we know what the opposite of sorrow is, right? It's joy. So where are places in the, Bible, in the Gospels where we see Jesus full of joy? Because he's experiencing the exact opposite here. I looked through the Gospels and I saw two specific instances where it talks about Jesus being full of joy. One is earlier in the the Gospel of Luke, Luke 10, where it says at Luke 10, 21, at that time, Jesus full of joy through the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. This is the passage where the disciples go out and they... um, are preaching the gospel and they see Satan fall like lightning. And Jesus goes on to say, but do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. I think the fullness of joy that we're seeing here is Jesus is communicating to them, rejoice that you're reconciled to God, that you're in a renewed relationship with God. It brings him joy to know that they are experiencing what he is experiencing. The second place is in John 15 where Jesus in the vine and the branches says, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So Jesus is saying, as I am with the Father, so you are in me. It's vine and branches. Obey him that you may experience his love. In other words, joy for Jesus comes from union with God and spreading that gospel, that good message in such a way that others are reconciled and reunited with God as well. It makes perfect sense when you think about it. I don't know if you've ever uh, been excited about someone to the point that you wanted to share them with someone else. I remember taking Lee Ellen to meet the parents, right? I had fallen in love with this woman and I wanted her to meet the parents. And so uh, we were going to meet there in Oklahoma We were in Charlottesville and so we were going to drive and meet in Nashville. And uh, we took my car, a Hyundai Sonata, which was in the days when Hyundai was actually junk and not what it is now. Well, unbeknownst to me, you know, it, it was always so hot in the Hyundai. And the problem was they had put on the exhaust fan and they had wired it so it went to the reverse. So it was always blowing hot air in, never blowing hot air out. So my wife is there all dolled up, ready to meet the parents. And it is a hot, hot ride. And by the time she's there, she's literally melting. And I feel horrible for her. She always looked beautiful to me, looks beautiful to me. But I wanted her to be at her best because I was so excited about uniting her, the one that I loved, with These people that I loved. See, that's what joy is for Jesus. To be one with the Father. In fact, in that prayer in John 17, right? As he prays to the Father, he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Let them also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. His joy is in union. And if that is where the fullness of his joy is, we can now begin to grasp why his sorrow is overwhelming to the point of death. Because Jesus has had a unity and a union and an intimacy with, father, with his father from all eternity. See, Lee ellen, with Lee ellen I was united to her, but not from the beginning. And in fact, the scriptures tell me that our union, which is beautiful, is a temporary one, right? In heaven, we'll no longer be given in marriage, but this is a union that is from all eternity, and Jesus is recognizing in order for these people to become one with God, I must become two with God. If you remember in the garden, Adam and Eve who walked with God in intimacy and fellowship sinned. And God the Father said quite clearly, the one who sins is the one who will die. And because of their sin, they were, uh, there was an expulsion from the garden. They were sent out. Is it not interesting that we're back in a garden again and Jesus is standing before God the Father and a tree is in the picture, the cross. Jesus must be willing to separate Himself from the Father to take on the sins of His people in order that they may become one. But in order for that to happen, he must become sin itself. He must be disengaged from God. Rather than feeling love and union with God, he must feel anger and wrath and emptiness and loneliness. Feelings that he's never had before. God does have feelings. He is a person. He is personal. He is tri-personal. And so the sorrow in Jesus' heart the overwhelming emptiness of the prospect of being separated from his father is taking him down to the depths of the earth. And it says that he is in agony and that he is sweating drops of blood that is actually a condition hematocroditis something, something, something in which you are under such stress that the capillaries in your skin break and blood intermingles with tears. The aspect, the prospect of not being with God is akin to Jesus' of death. The closest illustration that I can bring is marriage. I found an interesting study by the Harvard Medical School. Uh, this uh, was out, came out in the Daily Mail, which is the UK's biggest newspaper, I believe. And it says that you really can die of a broken heart. Surviving spouses have a 66% higher chance of dying in the next three months after their partner's death. They did a study of 12,000 different participants from 1998 to 2008. And they just, uh, these couples, and they watched and they saw who died uh, and then the result of who died after. And uh, it was a much higher average of the widows of spouses dying but in particular, the three months after a spouse died, they discovered it's their 66 higher, a 66% higher chance of dying. Now, why is that? I think it's because when you've been united to someone, albeit imperfectly, a lot of these folks who were dying were older for a significant amount of time, decades, and then to not have them at your side. Brings an emptiness and a loneliness that some people can't bear. And they die of a broken heart. And that can't even begin to compare to the relationship that the Son has with the Father. They've always been one. What a great cost. But Jesus chose, didn't he? He chose. Whatever you think about Jesus Christ and the Father, there is one thing I don't believe that you can say, which is that he doesn't care. He doesn't have any feeling about me. He doesn't know what it's like to lose someone. He doesn't know what it's like to be lonely. Jesus knows separation and he knows loss. He's not immune to those things and neither is the Father. But Christ chose to become sin, to become two that we might become one with God. And so when God is silent and you can't see Him or hear Him or feel Him, remember Gethsemane. Remember that He chose when you do feel alone and you feel that God has forsaken you that he doesn't care remember that Jesus knows what that feels like that in that garden with his heart overwhelmed with sorrow about what was going to happen had to endure the agony and make the decision and go forward well we must now we move to point number two process, and understand the necessity. I mean, surely there was another way. Jesus in verse 42 says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, this is a very interesting statement because it really is perhaps the only time that I see where it seems that Jesus is not in perfect Harmony with his father. Right? He's not questioning his authority. The father's authority. But he's asking. Surely there's another way. Not surely. But if there is. Is Jesus having second thoughts? Is he shrinking back from what is coming before him? This gruesome death which the Romans have perfected. Many other people, Christians, have died gruesome deaths, stared death in the face, and not flinched. Is it possible that Jesus is not brave? Is it possible that Jesus is fearing death? We know that's not true. So there has to be a deeper issue of why Jesus is asking this question. What's behind it? What's behind it is the cup. The cup That Jesus is saying, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me so that I don't have to drink it. What's in this cup? The cup is mentioned many times in the Old Testament. And almost every time the cup is mentioned in the Old Testament, it is the equivalent of sin and wrath. Psalm 75, 8. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink it down to its dregs. Isaiah 51.7 Wake yourself and stand, O Jerusalem, You you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. What is in that cup is sin and the wrath of God that ensues from it. See, there's, we have a sort of calculus in our mind that God doesn't really care about sin. He just sort of waves a magic wand and somehow it goes away, right? But God does care. When a child is molested, God cares. When women are trafficked, God cares. When you and I have hatred in our heart, which the New Testament says is the equivalent of murder, God cares. Or lust, or disobedience, or lies, or jealousy, or envy, or all of those things. God cares. In fact, the Bible says that there will be an account for every single careless word that is spoken. The Bible tells us that fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. There is a cup that each one of us has. Well, what's in Jesus' cup? The answer is nothing. If we were to look in Jesus' cup, the record, the compendium of his sins, of his evil, there is nothing in there. But what's in this cup? This is the cup that contains the sins of everyone he came to save. Adam and Eve's betrayal is in that cup. David's adultery with Bathsheba and ensuing uh, murder of Uriah the Hittite is in that cup. Peter's calling down curses on himself and denying Jesus Christ. In front of Christ is in that cup. The 30,000 slaves that John Newton trafficked is in that cup. And so are my lies and my selfishness and my hatred. See, somebody has to drink the cup. Either me or him. But that cup contains the cup. Of millions, maybe billions of the people that he has come to save. And you see why it is so hard for Christ to drink it? Because it is against the essence of who Jesus is. He is the image of God. The exact imprint of his nature. His very existence is to bring glory to God, to manifest glory of God by living, to show the world. He always does what pleases the Father. He is the manifestation of God. And to drink that cup, to take on sin, is to be the repudiation of the very thing that He is not. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Doesn't say he was made him to be a sinner who knew no sin, but sin itself. And why Jesus is struggling is because his essence is saying, I don't want to dishonor you. I don't want to be anything else but the one that manifests perfectly your glory. Surely there's another way. And we all know that ultimately Jesus does manifest the glory of God, for in becoming sin, he shows love and redemption. But we have to answer that question was there another way? Don't you think if the God of the universe could find another way, he would have? And so it's ludicrous after standing in the garden and standing before the cross to say that there is another path to God. The intellectuals who say, oh, I like his teaching. I like his example. But this cross, this bloody, gory affair, whatever it is. Let's set that aside. It's so primitive. Let's focus on his teaching and be redeemed by that. Or is it not more ludicrous to say, I don't need a Jesus. In fact, I don't need anyone. By my own righteousness, I will be shown to merit salvation. I'll pick myself up by my own bootstraps. I'll do it. What do you think God is going to do to somebody who refuses to receive the grace of God that Jesus Christ freely poured out on the cross? It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? There was no other way, my friends. He did go to the cross Christian, your sin was in that cup and he drank it to the dregs and he paid for that sin so that I no longer have a cup that has sin in it but rather blessing. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So how shall we respond Shall we pity Jesus on the cross? Jesus says, Don't pity me. Pity yourselves if you don't receive what I'm doing for you. We should not pity Christ. We should pity those who don't embrace. For he drank that once, that cup, and he doesn't need to drink it again. Which cup will you take? The cup of wrath or the cup of blessing? The cup of union or the cup of enmity and separation? Do your business with God sooner than later. Understand the necessity. Recognize the price and finally value the gift. When somebody gives you a gift, They want you to open it. That's why Jesus came, didn't he? And he came to bring good news, not good advice. This is what I'm going to do, and this is what he has done. And we stand on the other side of the cross. The Jews who asked him the question in John 6, what must we do to do the works of God? Jesus' answer was so poignant, and it's poignant for us today, to believe in the one whom he has sent. And so Jesus gives us this command to watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus was watching and praying so he would not fall into the temptation of accomplishing our salvation. We must watch and pray so we do not fall into the temptation to not experience and live out his salvation. See, the point of Gethsemane and the cross was that we could have union with God. To be at peace with God. And because of what Christ has done, that union has begun. There is a book in heaven and it is called the book of life. And if you are a Christian, if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, if you open up that book, And I think when we get to heaven, we'll be able to go look at that book and see our name in it. And there is a cup at the banquet the cup of blessing, the cup of a son, the cup of a daughter that's waiting for us at the feast in the kingdom of God. But we are on this earth now, aren't we? And we're still fallen creatures. And there still is the enemy who, though paralyzed, has not been completely vanquished, right? Not until the final battle. See, Satan can't take away your salvation, what Jesus Christ did on that cross, if you are a Christian. But he can do his best to take away the joy of that salvation. One of the greatest tragedies and challenges of life is you can be a Christian. And yet live and think as you are not. Continuing to live imprisoned in a cage. Even when the door is already open. Because Satan only has one power over you. It's the power to lie. And so Jesus is teaching us. There is a way to battle. To live in this blessing. Even now. Because the union has begun. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And so friends, we must start out our day. We must visit the Garden of Gethsemane often with the disciples. We must watch and pray the gift, remembering the price, understanding the necessity. We must fellowship with one another, encouraging one another so that we wouldn't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We must watch and pray because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Are you praying that your eyes would be open to see the glory that God has given you? Watch and pray doesn't mean just on Sunday, just when Ken Doddle gets up and says something. Just Esther Carlos Praise and then we finish. It's a moment by moment protection of what God has given you. It was Thomas Jefferson, that great atheist, not atheist, but who said the price of freedom is diligence. Pray for diligence, pray for faith, pray for protection. Pray for one another. We have been given the greatest gift that anyone could ever be given. The gift of love. A love that knows no bounds. Carry your cup with you. Watch and pray. How you honor the Lord is by valuing the gift of what He did for you. Of what He continues to do for you. Take that cup and go into the world. Take that cup into your marriage. Take that cup into your job. Take that cup into your private life where no one is looking. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as is in heaven. Feed me. Watch over me and protect me from the evil one. Love knows no bounds. Let us rejoice and watch and pray. Let's pray together. I thank you that you allowed us to sit in the garden of Gethsemane to see your sorrow that you experienced about being separated from your Father that we might know what a great gift it is to be united to Him. I thank you that we saw your wavering that we might know how great the price was that you paid a repudiation of all that you've meant to be but in the end upholding all that you are glorifying the Father by laying down your life by willing to experience this pain. You did not become a sinner, for you are not a sinner, Christ. But you became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Let us watch and pray and wonder at the cup of blessing that has been handed to us and that we will drink in its fullness at the end. We pray in Christ's name, amen.